You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today, Christoph Heeman. Hello. Hello, Christoph. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We're very excited to talk to you. Obviously, a month or two ago, we did an episode covering your collaboration with Merzbau and ended up getting in touch after that and thought, what a great thing to just have a, a conversation with you as you've been part of the underground since the 80s and through to today. So You've had so many amazing experiences, worked with so many people, done so much lovely art. And we can't wait to talk to you about it. Exactly. So as it is usually the best style, let's start from back in those days. Where did you discover the the underground scene, the industrial scene at that time in the 80s, and what led you to participating in that? Mm, this is a weird story because I, I always loved music and I was listening to music, but I never thought I would end up making music until one day in 1983 when I walked into a record store and I um, I met this guy. I mean, I, I knew vaguely who he was. And I knew his name, so uh, and I knew he was into Throbbing Gressel and SPK, and so I started talking to him. And I uh, had already been listening to a lot of things like The Residents and Perubu and uh, whatever I could get a hold of in Germany, in a small town in Germany in the early eighties. Um, it wasn't like it is today. But back then, you really had to strike luck and find something in a shop. Uh, but anyway, I met this guy and uh, we decided to go to a different record shop. And on the way there, we started talking and um, he just invited me to um, do a jam session with him. And I just said, I have no idea. You know, I've never touched it. I, I mean, we had, a, we had a piano at home and I, I sometimes played that piano when I was, when nobody else was in the house or something, but I, uh, I'd never thought of um, doing anything like that myself. But um, we uh, started out with a broken guitar and a, a cork MS-20 synthesizer and um, just recorded uh, watching um, cheap horror movies. <laughs> well, that's what we did. We, I so love we, it. We would uh, watch um, things like uh, Mother's Day or um, these, um, probably you don't know these, the Spanish uh, horror films from the 70s, uh, with the riding corpses, I don't know the legend. Tombs of the Blind Dead. I I never found an English translation for the titles for these films that we were watching, but mm -hmm. um, they uh, were completely corny, and um, we would uh, take elements from the soundtracks and mix them into the music we were producing, and. Um, yeah, so it started out with a bedroom recording. And was this 
HNAS or was this predating HNAS? We hadn't had the name yet. We were um, changing band names really frequently. It was one of our favorite pastimes to make up stupid band concepts. Um, and um, one of them was Mises Gaganga. Remember the first HNAS record was uh, so to say, uh, so to speak, uh, co-produced with Mises Gaganga, but Mises Gaganga was just us. And never, we just made them up. Um, <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Before we continue our conversation with Christoph, a word from our sponsor. Now available on Oxen Records, Incapacitance, Oxen Man's Uneasiness CD. Newest studio recordings from arguably the most important group in noise history, pushing the boundaries of their enduring style. NBDY. Woods and Wires CDs, Superior Harsh Noise Cut Up from Czech Republic, Title Still Available, Dressing from the Body to the Door, Scum Unsustainable Social Condition, Necessary Downfall, Leah P. Surviving the Familiar, available at oxenrecords.bigcartel.com. Will you, for our especially American audience, and especially for me who always pronounces things terribly, will you officially say the HNAS name properly so we can have it. Hirsche nicht auf Sofa. <laughs> We've all officially said it incorrectly. So yeah. perfect. <laughs> so <thank you. laughs> and I will continue to call it HNAS we will just for cut you everyone's in. ears. <laughs> and and we must know, is is the Hirsche, is it a moose or is it a deer? It's a deer. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Preceding um, HNAS, there was a band called Sieben Elche. I mean, it was us again. We just called ourselves Sieben Elche, which mm -hmm. is seven mooses. So um, oh, the moose okay. was, <laughs> we, we liked anything with antlers, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> They're quite aesthetic. Well, even just quickly saying how the residents were something you were very into in the 70s, that makes total sense mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. some of the stylistic choices and even the the injection of humor that you seem to put in through a lot of different uh, projects of yours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I loved the residents when I discovered them. Um, it was so mysterious and um, just brilliant. Um, I loved them up until... I saw them uh, perform. I, I had a chance to see the Mole Show in 1983, and I really didn't like that for some reason. <laughs> I was so disappointed. All the mystery had gone. Um, but it was a time for um, the residents to change anyway. Uh, but that's another story. Um, for sure. So you guys are recording in the bedroom, changing names, making new names, just going with so many different things. When do you end up crossing paths with someone like Steve Stapleton? And when do you start connecting with people in the underground? Uh, this happened through a compilation album that we produced. Um, we were at that point big fans of White House and Nurse Was Wound. And we said, wouldn't it be great to put out a record with Nurse Was Wound and White House on? And we wrote to all these people that we um, 
met through magazines. You had to buy these magazines at the time uh, in weird shops um, that had all these little ads and reviews uh, for records. And um, so uh, we wrote to Steve Stapleton and to William Bennett, and we said, um, we want to put out this compilation, but if you're not going to contribute, we're not going to put out this record. <laughs> so <laughs> it worked. <laughs> we got <laughs> contributions, really excellent contributions from both of them. Um, and uh, then I met Steve Stapleton. That's a funny story. Um, I started talking to him on the phone and uh, uh, he, he liked the compilation and he liked the the HNAS track on the compilation. And um, he said, oh, I need to go to Cologne to cut Sylvie and Babs. Uh, and uh, Cologne is quite close to Aachen and it's a stop on the way from uh, Cologne to London back. So they stopped on the way back. But um, I didn't know anything about that. All I knew was uh, one day my parents had just gone on holiday that same day. And then there was this taxi driving up in front of the house. And uh, out came these unusual looking people. <laughs> and oh, my God. I think Steve Stapleton has come to visit me. But I never I'd only spoke with him on the phone. But this was a complete surprise. So, um it was great. Yeah, we they stayed for a couple of days and uh, got, we got to know each other. And they invited us to come to London and to visit them, which we did. And then uh, we said we can't leave here before we've uh, not seen the legendary IPS studio where all oh, the yeah. uh, mm -hmm. early White House and Nurses Wound and lots of other things were recorded. Um, so um, we went to the studio, we booked a studio for a day and uh, we invited Stephen and Diana Rogerson to join us um, in the studio. And that's um, how um, Melchior came about. Um, we, we brought some recordings um, that we made at home, but... Um, we uh, added a lot of new stuff and uh, completely changed um, into something else. I mean, it's obvious when you compare the first record and then you hear Melchior, they're like worlds apart, I think. Um, yeah. So um, we learned a lot from uh, Stephen uh, in the day, uh, how to work in the studio, because we were clueless. We had no idea. We just worked with a cassette far track and some. Um, really simple setup, uh, essentially. So um, it was so exciting. After we started working in the studio, we never wanted to go back to home recording. That's so awesome. And before meeting uh, Steve Stapleton, in Germany in the early 80s, were you able to see shows? You said you saw The Residents in 83, but prior to that, were were you ever able to see any underground shows, industrial shows around your area, or did you travel to go see shows? What was that like, the live aspect of what you were going to see at the time? 
uh, mostly we had to travel because there weren't any many shows in Aachen. I mean, in, in my hometown, I got to see the uh, Tötliche Doris, for example. You could see, but when we wanted to see White House, we had to travel, which we did, which was quite amazing at the time. Yeah, I must say. <laughs> Where did you see White House and about what year was it, if you remember? I saw him twice. Once in 84 in Bonn, it was a very short set because the organizers had not let anybody know that what was happening that night. I think they played the host of the, uh, the event, played him an Eilis in Gaza tape and said, this is White House. And then White House came on and... After 20 minutes, somebody cut off the electricity. It just <laughs> 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 it was a very short set, but <laughs> I loved it. And then I saw them again in 1985 in uh, a town, very small Dutch town called Horst. I don't know why they played in that small town but and just somebody was so obsessed with them obviously he managed to get them to play in this <laughs> youth club <laughs> so they played this youth club and um they had just completed great white death and they played the entire album that night in a set which was um fantastic i thought wow. <laughs> wow what a show that must have been uh <laughs> Speaking of getting in touch with Nurse with Wound and, and White House, obviously these shows were probably a key point in that. But also, you know, if we look at the, the compilation you were referring to was was Orange Robin. Right. And there's there's also an American artist on here who's very near and dear to us, which is the Haters. How did you get in touch with GX Jupiter Larson back then? We read about the haters in a magazine. I, I can't remember what it was called, Interchange or something. Um, and uh, there was an ad for three seven inches that he had released. And one of them was a completely silent record that uh, he encouraged listeners to um, put on scratches so you could make your own haters record that way. And we were quite fascinated with that concept. So I wrote to Gerald. And he sent us those records um, back, and we were um, intrigued enough to ask them to provide a track for the compilation. Were you aware of much else in the American realm of experimental music back then? Were there other artists you considered for the compilation, or, or was The Haters sort of the one that stood out? We weren't uh, in touch with so many people in America. I think that was the problem. We were aware of certain people that were doing things at the time, but uh, there was um, Paul Limmer's uh, controlled bleeding, who was um, I was aware of. I mean, we loved Chrome or the residents, but we would have never thought of uh, asking them to give us a, a track for the compilation. It was too difficult. And I only heard of LAFMS later on, like a couple of years later. But at that point, we did another compilation, as you probably know, um, called Ohrensausen. And uh, after that, we kind of lost interest in compilations. So uh, we did other things on the label. But we did Smegma were on the second compilation. So um, that was an American band we were interested in. And and they're still around. They're having their 50th anniversary this year, actually. 
Yeah, yeah. Smegma, um, we, I think we've all seen Smegma here, you know, a bunch living in, well, living in Los Angeles, but also just mm-hmm. from being around them in the American scene. And I was going to point out, yeah, notably, that, that Orensausen also it has one American band on it. So I thought that was interesting about the compilations is the, the sort of standout of, of a localized European scene and then one American artist. Seems like it was just uh, just chance and luck (laughs) that they're on there. Never looked at it that way, but uh, it's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Something that seems to be an inspiration for your work, certainly in the early days, and I'm sure for a long time, was different things within the art world, like Dada and surrealism, were those something that you were interested in at the time and did it influence some of the work you were doing? Uh, Definitely. Yeah. I always loved, uh, especially surrealism. I was always um, fascinated with since my um, childhood days, really, you know, I I loved the, the paintings and I was always interested in paintings and um, I didn't know about surrealist poetry at the time, but um, that what came later on that uh, uh, I found I had an interest in that. Even though we were never thinking uh, of ourselves as being artists when uh, we created the lyrics for the early HNAS records where, you know, the people do sing these lyrics that you could describe as surrealist but uh we we didn't look at we we were just having fun we're just <laughs> do you remember some specific artists that really really spoke to you and and what, how did you end up discovering some of these artists when no, you No it was always uh, some of the different people that inspired me it was never one thing that became the blueprint for anything like i think a lot of people work like that they hear one thing and that's their blueprint say like Christian Vendée of Magma, he heard Aphrodite's Child, and he was obsessed with that record, 666. Mm-hmm. And he, he never stopped trying to make 666. But I think for me, I, I don't have that, no. And was it running a label that encouraged you to, um, you know, engage in visual art? Because you've designed covers and, and done layouts before. So is, is that what, you know, made you start becoming a visual artist? No, I I was always uh, painting and drawing. Um, when I was um, in school, uh, my parents sent me to a painter, and uh, he gave me, he taught me. He, I, I went every week for arts classes because I, I refused to learn an instrument. Everybody in my family had to learn a musical instrument, and I they tried everything on me. Like I had. Um, recorder lessons and a xylophone and um, uh, even um, the piano I tried, but um, I I had more of a knack for, uh, more of an interest in visual arts. So I started painting early on. Yeah. So it was just natural. I always wanted, dreamed of becoming an album cover designer, actually. So it uh, was a, a natural thing for me to start making record covers then yeah really like that idea you you said your your family encouraged you to learn a musical instrument but it, it never really 
took. Is anyone else in your family in music for multiple decades or is it only you? Oh, my brother has um, been uh, involved with music since um, earlier than me even. And um, he, he first, he went through different instruments as well. He started playing violin and then he started playing the cello and then he wanted to play drums and then eventually he ended up with guitar and he still plays guitar uh, passionately these days. Yeah. He's featured on some HNAS records, yes? That's right. Yeah. And I did some collaborative work with him as well. Very cool. So HNAS is happening. It's the mid eighties. You're in contact with people like Nurse with Wound. You're in contact with White House. This sort of sets the stage for me, at least for one of your other bands, Ultra. How did Ultra come to be? In 1986, this guy from Washington State wrote us and was really interested in um, the compilations we'd done and um, also the uh, HNAS album on United Dairies. And uh, he said, I'm coming to Europe. Why don't I um, stop by and say hi? And so he did. And we got on um, really well and uh, we just joked about starting a band together and um, then um, he said why don't we do it and he um, started sending us tapes um, that we um, started processing and adding stuff to and um, then he came back uh, to visit us again and we went to the studio and finished the first Ultra album together. That's how it happened. And that's Youthful Pleasures? Right. John Carlson, that was his name. He was mostly responsible for the titles and the um, lyrics. And uh, Achim and I were mostly um, producing the soundtrack uh, to go with um, the sinister humor <laughs> that he was so fond of the three of us love ultra we talk about ultra a lot and that great aspect to ultra where it's in the realm of the early power electronics it's there's you there's the touch tones but then it goes off in this completely own unique direction that i still there's really no other band that I think in any way sounds like ultra it's immediate. Yeah. If ultra is on, you know, you know, it's it ultra. <laughs> and, and so again, were you guys enjoying working within that world, but you know, injecting your own vision into that? Totally. It was just taking a humorous look at power electronics and dark ritual work. We were always mocking it because we were fascinated by it, but we also found it very amusing. Like White House, I always find is kind of really great, but it's also comical at the same time. So um, I was interested in uh, producing something that was both humorous and dark at the same time. Absolutely. That, that combination of all things. And and you can listen to it with a very different 
moods going into it. Something like the Roman holiday collection is actually today. It's very, it's gray. It's rainy. It's cold. It's cold. Perfect setting to listen to mm -hmm. something like Roman holiday. It's very morose, very slow, very dark. And then, but then you finish it off with, with either, you know, it's the compilation. Obviously you finish it off with letter of introduction from the single and all of a sudden you're up and you're, it's the, you're mm -hmm. up and excited again. So I love the way I love the, the path all the albums take you on and the different moods that they set. Now mm -hmm. you mentioned you would play some piano at home. Are you playing the piano on the ultra tracks and the HNAS tracks or is that someone else? Um, I, I play some of it. Definitely. I mean, we took turns, but, um, uh, I play uh, most of the piano, I think, uh, in retrospect. Yeah. And there's somewhat confusion with the Dom label. Can you, it's, can you break down the different eras of Dom, the different, you know, uh, tendrils, uh, tendrils <laughs> of Dom and, and how that all came to be? Us, there was just one Dom label and we agreed on what we were going to put out. I mean, it was just a relatively short time looking back now. And after a few years, our interests kind of drifted apart and we wanted to, one of us wanted to release a record, which the other one didn't want to do. So um, we said, we'll do our own divisions so um, we can put out um, whatever we want. And um, then I started the Dom Bartwuchs label and uh, Achim started the uh, Dom Elchklang label and put out uh, things like the Damenbart record, which um, still is um, raises a lot of questions today. I think people talk about that one as well. And uh, that's a curious one because Damenbart was also one of the many incarnations we had before HNAS. Um, so uh, there is a early Damenbart cassette from 1984. So we're, we're predating the album, which I'm still threatening to release one day. <laughs> <laughs> But um, after a while, I was um, tired of Dome, and then I decided to start a fresh new label, and then I started Streamline. Um, and uh, I mean, Dome Artbooks technically still is um, in existence. I, I put out a few CDRs, just very small releases um, over the last years. And then there was the American division. That's right. Yeah. John uh, Carlson, he did uh, Dome America until maybe 2008 or something, 2008 or 2010. And then he sold the label to um, some guy in Texas um, whose name um, I don't recall at the moment. So it, yeah. it so uh, at this point, Dom America is totally separate from you. You have absolutely nothing to do with it other than, I mean, obviously they put out the ultra box set, but you're, you're not, you don't have any uh, connection with them at this point. 
I don't. Uh, we had a falling out over the uh, production of the box set. I was not very happy with the presentation. I had uh, completely different ideas for the box set, and um, I was quite disappointed when they just went ahead and released it without consulting me further because it was not like we discussed it. But anyway, uh, it came out and the sound is on there. So it's okay, I guess. Did HNAS or Ultra play live in the 80s? Ultra never played live, but HNAS had one show very badly prepared. I mean, because we were trying something too big for us at the time for our experience. We had no experience at all with concerts. And we had a show in a, at a school party in Husum in northern Germany, very north of Germany. And uh, we drove out there. And that is actually, it should have never come out, that recording, but it is a bonus track on one of the HNAS CDs that came out uh, around 2004 or five, I think, yes. So, you so said, it's documented, yeah, yeah. So you you stopped doing your part of the Dom label and start Streamline. Was that, you, you knew you wanted to do a label, but you wanted to start fresh, is that correct? Yeah, I wanted a clear start without the association of the the dome, what dome uh, represented. I mean, it. Uh, maybe it was also a personal thing. I just wanted to have a separation, uh, and uh, we people change, and our interests changed, and so um, I, I lost touch with um, my ex bandmate from HNAS, and um, so it was. Um, interesting to start a new label also um i when i started streamline i really thought it was going to be a cd label exclusively and maybe that was a change as well because dome had only released vinyl at the time and back in 92 cds were still a bit exciting you know a little bit <laughs> in the early 90s you're starting streamline you're starting to do work under your own name as well as working with some other people in various projects how did you see the landscape of underground noise experimental whatever words we want to use for it how did you see it changing and who were you looking at that was getting you excited around the early 90s Around the early 90s, I wasn't paying attention to very much of what was going on around me. I think I was completely um, interested uh, in uh, things from the 70s. I, I was mostly um, listening to um, strange, um, progressive and experimental music from the 70s and at that point. So I wasn't paying much attention. Um, I mean, I, I, I did. We exchanged records with people and um, I heard um, things, but um, I was more focused on different things on a different period. and, and a different um, 
style of music. I'd lost interest in industrial music, for example, at that point completely. But you would start to work with, or at least be associated with, projects like P sixteen D four, Sabothi, Franz D Ward. This sort of crew of people. I I appreciated their work, but I never felt there was a connection between okay. what I was doing and what what they were doing. I felt it was completely separate. I I really appreciated the P sixteen D four, for example. Um, well, I've even done a, a remix of one of Ralph's tracks for his Tulpa's 5 CD project. But yeah, I never felt a real connection. It's, it's funny because I, I, I was listening to such completely different things, anything but industrial and noise music, whereas um, nowadays I'm much more interested in noise music. Again, I'm, I'm listening to... Um, Things uh, like well, I uh, I don't know if you need to know. Uh, just um, been playing a lot of Kevin Drum, for example, lately. So yeah. yeah. So awesome. People who who must have uh, inspired you that are from the noise scene back then would have been Jim O'Rourke, who you and Edward Cospell of Legendary Pink Dots, who you collaborated with on the the first Streamline CD, the Mimir Mimiriad album. Mm-hmm. We heard a bit from Jim's side when we spoke with him about spending time with you, but I'd love to hear it from your side and also how you got in touch with and started a project with Edward Cospell. This was on a trip to Amsterdam in 1986 when uh, actually John Carlson from Ultra and uh, Achim and myself, we went to um, Amsterdam and I had brief contact with Edward Cospell before and he, so I got his address and we stopped by his place and um, we spent an afternoon together and uh, Edward invited me to come back to Amsterdam and uh, which was great. I, I'd been a big fan of the legendary Pink Dots from the first moment I'd heard them and um, I was even buying the cassettes. I, I always hated cassette releases but you can measure my excitement by the fact that I would even buy tapes of this band to hear the music. <laughs> so um, uh, then uh, again, we just sat around and listened to so much music and decided to uh, create our own um, fusion of our ideas. And uh, that's how Mimir came about. Uh, Edward asked Phil to join the band and I asked my brother Andreas and um, then we uh, went met in the studio that we usually recorded in in Aachen and recorded the, the first Mimir album. Most of it was done there. It was exactly in the weeks when the Berlin Wall came down. I remember that it was really strange. We uh, one day after coming back from recording, David Jackman was on the phone and he said, "Do you have a TV? You've got to switch on your TV. People are dancing on the Berlin Wall." Um, that's uh, one of the memories I have associated with that record. Uh, a strange uh, changing time, maybe really significant for me because Mimir 
when total liberation from what I could do in HNAS, it was a real departure for me. I suddenly could do long tracks without vocals and improvise pieces, and it didn't have to be humorous for once. I mean, my bandmate in HNAS, Achim, he always insisted that it had to be humorous. Uh, I mean, we, we could not make a serious piece. Uh, there would always have to be a moment where somebody would shout cuckoo or something <laughs> at a certain point. <laughs> <laughs> How did you end up meeting and connecting and working with Jim O'Rourke? Like Grace said, we did talk to Jim last year and he discussed this, but just hearing it from you, how did you guys connect and start working together? David Jackman called me one night in 1989, I think, and he said, um, I met this guy from America, this young composer. Um, you really should meet him. You know, he, he played me the string quartet that he had composed, and it was really special. He said, this guy is going to be, this guy will be talked about, I think, he said. You know, this, uh, so um, Jim started writing me, and it happened so quickly. Within like three or four months, he came uh, to visit me. I still remember picking him up in the train station, and he had a William Burroughs t-shirt. We didn't know what we looked like, what she just looked like. In those days, of course, uh, you wouldn't know what a person looked like until you met them, mm -hmm. really. You wouldn't send photographs of yourself around, really. And uh, we became friends so quickly and started working on um, what became the Plastic Palace people um, releases later on. Yeah. That's so great. He's he's great. We love Jim. And we always talk about and think about the importance of in-person meetings, especially in the 80s and 90s. And it, and from already from talking to you right now, it seemed that that happened a lot. Stephen Stapleton, you meet in person, then you go meet him in person. Jim O'Rourke comes in person, but it's not always based around a show or even recording. Sometimes it's just the meeting and, and the the connection. How important was that for you back then? It was crucial. You had to, it changed everything once you met a person. Uh, you could write to somebody for years, but you wouldn't get the same impression that you get when you finally met them. So uh, we, we, you'd set out to... Um, travel and meet somebody you were interested in and um, guided by uh, intuition, <laughs> you would <laughs> take the risk of the travel. And yeah, it was a lot of good experiences. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's such, a, such a great and important thing. And especially back then, it feels like it was even more important. So you're starting to work with other people, you're starting to do your own solo stuff under your own name. And you said you, it was giving you the freedom to really go into this new direction, doing these long form pieces, having the titles and the art be what, what you, what you wanted them to be at that time. Maybe you weren't interested in injecting the humor at, at, in, at that time. So when you start doing your own solo recordings, 
where what where were you thinking about where you wanted it to go or were you just letting it happen and see where it went with your recordings I uh, always had a strong intuition of where I wanted things to go, but uh, I still um, had enough fun with it to just set up the experiment and uh, let it go. I still remember when I was making after solstice, uh, one afternoon I was lying in bed and I was listening to myself breathing and imagined uh, this piece that was just based on breath and I immediately went down to the studio and kind of knew where the whole the whole shape of things I wanted to do, but the individual bits, um, they just happened as I went along, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that, that album in particular feels like it was a, 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 a point in your work where you, you know, it was, it was a very important point in your work, especially in your solo work. I uh, uh, look at it that way as well, even though, um, you know, you've talked about Sleeper Awakes on the Edge of the Abyss, so um, in such uh, excellent detail, um, uh, I think when I was making that record, it started out as a collaboration and Subconsciously, I was making my first solo album just using Masami Akita's sound sources as um, material for my first solo album. Because when um, maybe uh, oh, you've quoted me on this already, yeah. Well, but we do um, want to but, talk to you about this, oh, yeah, about the whole album because it is amazing. It. But yes, go ahead because he his response to the collaboration was was different, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he. I think he saw that I was doing my own thing, even though I have to say there is a lot of Mertzbau on that record. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not that I was, I was just um, naming it that way. I, I did use this material, uh, but I've just processed it so much that um, it became something completely different. And I, I did add some of my elements, uh, which have uh, no connection to what he was doing at the time. Um, which again is funny. Like I, I, at the time I was not so very much, I mean, I was listening to his records. I was somewhat interested in Merzba, but I could get more enthusiastic about it now than at the time, which is um, funny. Yeah. And you said you, you know, you processed his sounds a lot. What, does that exactly mean and what were you doing to process his sounds? Uh, I made loops. Uh, I layered uh, a lot of material. I uh, multi-tracked. Uh, I uh, changed speed and uh, I um, tape running direction. Uh, it was all done with analog means. So I had a A-track tape machine and a Rivox two-track stereo uh, master machine. And uh, that was basically my setup. I had a few um, effects boxes. That's what you hear. And you said that Masami had sent the same source material to other people as well. Is that correct, as far as you know? 
he sent that tape to a lot of people, not only P64 and the swimming behavior of the human infant. I can't remember, but he, uh, a lot of people did get that tape. And if you listen to collaborations with Mertzbau that came out around this time, earlier than uh, Sleep Heroics at the Edge of the Abyss, I think probably things that came out in the late 80s, Mertzbau collaborations, they all were based on um, that cassette that he sent to everybody, I think. Yeah. Be interesting to compare those albums. Yes. You would spot the elements, I would think. Yeah. You mentioned with HNAS and after meeting Stapleton and going to the IPS studio that it, it changed and you only wanted to record in a studio. Did that shift back to recording in a home studio for you with your solo work? Or how long did you continue going into a studio for recordings? We uh, went from uh, 85 to 89 uh, to a place in Aachen called Artlo Studio, uh, where we produced a lot of the HNAS stuff. Um, but we we set up our own studio, so it wasn't bedroom recording anymore. We bought, basically, we bought the equipment from the studio we were recording in. Um, so we knew the equipment somewhat, and we could have similar recording quality, except we didn't have that engineer anymore. I had to learn how to engineer myself, which is also um, what uh, Sleeper Awakes on the Edge of the Abyss is about. It's me learning how to control my own studio. <laughs> I learned a lot doing that record. <laughs> One of the things we were talking about after Solstice that's noted in there is a dedication to Noel Scott Engel, aka Scott Walker. Did you take much inspiration from Scott Walker or the Walker Brothers? I actually used some of the Walker Brothers and even Scott Walker, I, I took some loops, but most of all, um, I uh, just really uh, enjoy Scott Walker. I think he's um, just really inspiring and uh, amazing musician and songwriter and singer. Um, so it was a very heartfelt dedication. I sent him a copy of the CD and he, I did get a letter from him, um, which almost knocked me out. Yeah, I remember the day when I went to my mailbox and I had this... Um, letter without a return address and it was all handwritten on a um little notepad <laughs> something do you do you still have the letter do you hang on or have you hung on to the ephemera and things collected from your years of doing this i i certainly have that letter still yeah um that's awesome yeah he 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 thanked me from refraining from star wars effects <laughs> but do you, do you have any other letters from back in in the 80s or the 90s or just specific ones that meant a lot to you uh, i had too many and um i think my uh, when i was living at my parents house i had about um six or seven plastic bags full of letters, which uh, my mother unfortunately disposed of one oh, day man. when it was getting too much. Yeah, I wish I had them. But uh, on the other hand, um, 
I uh, get so attached to keeping things. I'm, I am a big collector of stuff. So um, maybe it's good sometimes um, if somebody forces you to give up with a part of your collection um, that uh, you don't really need so badly anymore. Yeah. So with so few live shows in the first, you know, 80s and the 90s for you, were you adverse to playing live? Was it something that wasn't interesting to you? Or was it just that the opportunity didn't arise then? What was your philosophy about playing live then since it was so far and few in between that you did play live? I uh, hadn't found a way to realize my ideas in a concert. I I felt uh, a concert was too much of a compromise uh, to uh, worry about, to make the effort. Uh, I, I hadn't found a way to uh, create the sounds that I wanted to uh, have in a concert. Um, I... I wasn't thinking practically, I guess. <laughs> so I, I think I would have liked to have a whole orchestra on stage or something to really create what I wanted to hear. But eventually I thought of the idea of having a, a, a track to mix on stage. So instead of an A track, I started to use four CD players and that became my A track. So I had that set up and I found I could actually work with that okay using my own pre-recorded sounds um, to mix um, because that's what I do really. The music happens in the mixing process mostly. Is this the way you felt you worked uh, in HNAS as well? Is the music happens more in the mixing? No. Uh, HNS was different. It was much more direct and physical, and uh, there were singers, and uh, I mean, we had to uh, play instruments. And um, nowadays, I, I, I mean, I, I do play instruments occasionally. It's not like everything is um, electronics, um, but. Uh, I I use uh, sounds only to create textures and then I mix them together. But whereas in HNAS we would actually play songs, so it's it's a different thing. When you found your style of playing live, is it something that you enjoy now, or is it is it do you still prefer working in the studio? They're quite different, but I enjoy uh, doing concerts these days. Yeah, I, I wish I could do more. I'm I'm the world's worst self promoter, so I don't get many shows. <laughs> but um, I I did uh, a small tour with uh, Brunhild Ferrari last year, and uh, on each night I did a solo set, and I really had a great time doing those solo sets. Yeah, and uh, I decided to make um, every night different because I didn't want to bore Brunhild with um, repeating sets. So um, I played a completely different set on every night and she really uh, enjoyed it. <laughs> Another one of your long running collaborations is the project Mirror with Andrew Chalk. Can you tell us about how you started working with Andrew and what the goals of Mirror are? I've been in touch with Andrew since 
very early on, I think he brought to me, even before we put out a record, I don't exactly remember how we got in touch, but it was very early. And uh, after writing on and off for several years, Andrew again, finally uh, decided to come and visit me. And once we met in person, we decided to start working together and I had the studio uh, at hand. So um, he had brought a recording that uh, I started processing and that became our first album, Ringstones. Again, there was a lot of multi-tracking involved um, and was surprised at me spending so much time on the single sound um, uh, because he, he's a very fast worker normally, whereas I'm really slow. But we, for Mira, we compromised and... Um, it um, seemed to work very well for us. Um, we could uh, easily communicate and fuse our ideas, just create music we, we both like. And the drone music was uh, just came to us naturally. It wasn't, we, we didn't set out and say, let's make drone music. It just happened. And this collaboration with Andrew Chalk also marked the start of yet another label for you right three poplars Mm -hmm. which was your your label with andrew to release a lot of the mirror recordings uh how how did you find working in a collaborative label situation again coming sort of from doing dom to doing solo things with streamline and now sharing a label again three poplars was different uh in the way that we decided to um include uh, handmade elements to the album covers and it was a lot more arts and crafts and streamline um, so uh, it was an interesting diversion uh, and uh, it was a way to uh, work with our uh, collaborative um, graphic work as well because Andrew and I started doing um, collaborative work on drawings um, relatively um, quickly after we first got to meet. Um, So it was a whole concept um, doing um, the music and doing the packages together as well, which we extended for um, some other artists, which we invited to be on the label like Jim or Rock and William Basinski and Actually, the Brendan Walls, but the the finally the Brendan Walls record I released myself. It was supposed to come out on Three Poplars, but it fell apart uh, because Andrew and I had a bit of a falling out in two thousand five, I think. So um, I released the Brendan Walls record on uh, Outposts on the Dome Bartwuchs a little later. You and Andrew released a record in 2020, though, Some Days It Rains All Night. Mm-hmm. So that falling out's been patched up? It has. That's good to hear. Is there more mirror material in the works? There's, there's some reissues um, that we're discussing. Uh, we would like to uh, reissue The Mirror of the Sea and um, maybe some others, but um, there are no plans for further recordings yet. Okay. It seems that someone we've talked about a lot throughout this episode and someone that 
you seemingly are still very much in contact with or working with is Steve Sableton. Is he, is that someone you've just always been in touch with and connected with since that first meeting? Uh, we were in touch on and off, but I've, I've, uh, it was never um, a problem. Sure, sure. Never we reconnected. It was just like um, old friends meeting again. Yeah, but uh, Steve had quite a um, involved life, building houses in Ireland and starting two families and so on. So um, we uh, we often. Um, lose touch and then we'll, sure. we'll reconnect. Yeah. Like, like so many people, we are, mm -hmm. we have plenty of those people in our lives like that, where it's for no other reason, you just sort of lose touch and you reconnect and it's great. Now, did you ever go visit him in Ireland at that, at his, at his house that we've seen pictures of forever? I've uh, never been there, unfortunately. It looks so no, cool. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I always wanted to go. He's invited me several times, but, um, I don't know. Maybe uh, subconsciously, I'm scared of too much countryside or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I need to go and visit him. Um, it's uh, sooner than later because he's been uh, coming to various places I've lived there. Um, so um, I should, um, yeah. Maybe now it's time. Well, what do you have coming up in the near future here in 2023? You got albums coming out, any shows, any collaborations you're working on? What are you working on right now and for this year? Um, I just had a solo album out. I don't know if you're aware of it. It came out like two weeks ago. That is so it soon. Is. Did not realize that. I don't oh, wow. know how preparing for this episode that that didn't hit us. I but need to check it out immediately. We absolutely have to check that it, out right it's, away. It's called End of an Era. It's on a French label called Ferns Recordings. Maybe oh, you Ferns. know it. Yeah, yeah. They, they put yeah, out like yeah. Small Cruel Party and, and, and uh, Joe Colley. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. Um, and then I did a collaboration with a Belgian um, artist, Gerard Hermann. I don't know if he's had a, an album on the Untracked label and he's put out some stuff on Krak. Uh, we did an album together and that is coming out in April under the name Project Pope. I have just released two new CDs on stream by Hen Ochlet, a British group. And then I'm planning more album releases for later in the year. They're in production now. They have been cut. There's an album by Bonel Ferrari. And then there's a new uh, album by Kevin Drum, which I'm really excited about. That's exciting. And also an album by Sigtregor Berg Sigmarsson, the Icelandic artist. You, you must be aware of yeah, him Yeah, from well. uh, Still yeah. of Stepper. That's right. Oh, well, that's so cool. Well, obviously, we're going to put up links to everything where we can get all the new stuff and make sure everyone is geared up for the new releases coming out this year. And uh, that's super exciting. Now, what about shows? Um, I have another show with Bruno Ferrari, and uh, that's in Paris in June, if um, anybody is around, um, June 7. And then I will do some shows to promote the Project Pope album with Gerard Herrmann. 
That awesome. is excellent. And uh, I'm hoping to come back to the States um, in um, September or October, but um, I'm, I'm just uh, thinking about it. I, um, I'm in touch with Bill Nace, and he's suggested for us to play some shows together, which I'm really excited about because I really like his work and I love his open mouth label. I, I'm a big fan and I collect the releases when I can. Yeah. Well, hopefully a Los Angeles show will be on the itinerary so we can meet in person and hang out and get to see you live. I'd love to see that. here would be great. Yeah. That would be fantastic. Um, yes. Well, this was such a fun conversation. Thank you so yes, much for taking the time you. to do this, especially with the time difference. It's late at night for you. It's the afternoon for us, but mm. you, this is really cool of you. And what a great history, you know, we're, we're, we, we love all your output from the eighties into the nineties into now. It's just, it's a great wealth of a discography for anyone to dive into. So there's thanks. something there for everybody. Absolutely. Very so, true. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks so much for taking the time to do this. This, this was uh, really, really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you. And hopefully we'll see you stateside someday, or maybe we'll make it over there, but hopefully an in-person meeting is in our future. That would be excellent. Yeah, I would love to come to Los Angeles again. Awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much. You have been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 20 years, by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise.